Well, good, good morning, church. It's a, a blessing to be together as a family, uh, especially with the little change in weather. I was thinking first service, how often the wind blows us into church, but this morning the ice kind of slid us into church. So I'm uh, blessed that everybody made it here safely. Uh, we're back in the life of David, so you want to go ahead and find in your Bible 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, we're going to finish out uh, Samuel today. So we will have uh, journeyed through kind of the midway point of 1 Samuel all the way through 2 Samuel. We're kind of we're closing out a, a chapter here in the life of David. 2 Samuel 24. The title of the message this morning is Responses of Repentance. Responses of Repentance. 1 Samuel 24. Or 2 Samuel, yes, sorry, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Sunday night I kept saying James instead of John, and I guess this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. He moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and count the people that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, and may the the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king, king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the armies. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the armies of the army went out from the presence of the king and counted the people of Israel. Did you find verse 10 in the chapter? In verse 10 it says, And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the, middle, in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things, choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and took him, and he said to him, Shall seven years, your Bible may say three years, of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of men." So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from morning till the appointed time, from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. Father, we bow before you right now, and we thank you for the privilege we have to read your word 
in our own language. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege we have to own your scripture in print as we heard the turning of pages. Lord, thank you through technology that we have your word in uh, all the different devices that we've acquired. And thank you, Lord, that you have given us your truth that we could better understand who you are and what you've done and how we can please you. And so, Father, we ask this morning that you would use this section of Scripture to stir our hearts to walk in repentance, to walk, Lord, in a, in a way that honors and glorifies you. Help us to understand, Father, why you take sin so seriously and have a better respect and awe for who you are as our God and King. Lord, I pray that through this chapter, your son Jesus would be seen, that Christ would be exalted, and any that may gather in here this morning, if they're not right with you, that they would look unto Jesus and be saved. Lord, we as a, a congregation with the cold weather outside, with the snow from the weekend, uh, we pause right now and we want to lift up uh, and bring before you the events that we have coming up in the coming months. Lord, we know that we will soon celebrate Easter, and we will publicly gather outside to declare in, in this desert that your Son, that Christ has died and that He is risen. And so, Lord, we pray that on this Easter, you would provide good weather, that you would keep the desert wind away, that, Lord, you would even warm the morning, that there would be no excuse for gathering to proclaim the message of Jesus and to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Lord, we want to lift before you as a church, even right now, our Easter weekend, asking, Lord, that you would bring many out to hear the message of Christ. The Lord, you would work a, a work of awakening and revival in our high desert, that we would see lives changed. But God, as we come to your word now, we ask that you would speak to us. Pray, Lord, that you'd be glorified and honored, and again, that Christ would be exalted. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen. How dirty is too dirty? Think about it for a minute. It's a question that you've faced in your life. How dirty is too dirty? You're in a hurry to get ready and to leave the house, and there's a particular shirt that you're looking for. It is a shirt that completes the outfit, or it's just your favorite shirt. You look through your drawers, you don't find it. You look through the closet, you don't find it. And then all of a sudden, you locate the shirt in the dirty clothes. How dirty is too dirty? You grab it, and if you're a guy and you're married, you walk up to your spouse and go, does this stink? What do you do? You give it the sniff test. Uh, where are we going? How dirty is too dirty? You wake up in the morning and you're, you're ready for your, your first cup of coffee. You even have the old Folgers jingle running through your head. You're humming it as you're coming down the, the hall. The best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup. And some of you that are going, Folgers is nasty. 
go to the cupboard, you pull out your coffee mug, it's your favorite coffee mug, and you look in the inside of it, and there in the inside is a piece of cilantro that is stuck. How dirty is too dirty? Some of you say, it is Folgers. It's just a garnish. Scratch it out with your fingernail. Get a little upset. These kids don't know how to load the dishwasher, or this dishwasher doesn't know how to wash dishes. Whatever it is, how dirty is too dirty? What about this? Like, where do you have to find your toothbrush to consider it too dirty? Right? Is, if the toothbrush falls in the sink, do you look at it and go, like, well, it all kind of goes in the sink and just kind of rinse it off? You open up the vanity drawer, and there the toothbrush is thrown right next to the electric shaver. Is that too dirty? Is that where it's like, ah, well, we'll do the whole microwave water thing and heat it up? How dirty is too dirty? If you walk into your bathroom, and there you see your child or your grandchild scrubbing the toilet with your toothbrush, how dirty is too dirty? Just for clarity, the answer to that one is too dirty. <laughs> Time to get a new one. But even in that, it doesn't fit to do some boiling water or some Listerine or whatever other little old wives' tale your great-great-grandma told you about to make it okay. In other words, we discover in that that we all have standards. And the reality is, so often our human standards are on a scale and they go back and forth. It depends on how hungry I am, whether I wash the hands or not. It, it depends on just how bad it is. And for some of you, you're like, oh man, all of those are just way too dirty. And others of you are like, I don't know what was dirty about any of that stuff. It just builds my immunity. But think about it. We all have that scale and we come to 2 Samuel chapter 24 in verse 1, and it says that God is angry with Israel. And we learn something about God's scale or God's standard here. God is angry because God is holy. God has a standard, and unlike ours, God's standard in His holiness does not um, travel up a scale of, ah, oh, it's okay, it's just a little dirty, it's good enough. God's standard in His holiness means that God in His holiness is absolutely moral, morally pure and that God is absolutely distant between um, His creation in His holiness. In other words, when it says that God is angry, that is because Israel has done something that is in violation of God's moral purity, His holiness, that God lives and dwells in a... a space or on a level beyond all of humanity because He's holy. The Scripture, even of all the attributes of God, it's the, script, it's the attribute of His holiness that the angels choose to declare when they are in the presence of God. When they're in the presence of God and they, they sing of who He is, it is the holiness of God that they declare over and over and over again. It is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God because He is morally pure. He is above all. In other words, it's as if the angels have a little teenage moment and they say He's really, 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 really holy. Because God is holy, without blemish, without sin, 
without fault, without mark, in a category of his own in moral purity, when he sees sin, it upsets him. I'd like for you to listen to the words of the prophet Nahum, not a book we look at often, and as I read this verse, I just want to say, welcome to Calvary Chapel of the High Desert. In Nahum chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, the Lord is a jealous God, filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on all who oppose Him and continues to rage against His enemies. When God's holiness is attacked, when things that are done that are against His holiness it upsets him. Nahum, the prophet, continues to say this of the Lord in verse 3 of chapter 1, the Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great, and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. He displays his power in the whirlwind and the storm. Do you see verse 1? It says, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Israel did something that we do not know what it was, but it was in violation of God's law or who God is. It violated His holiness, and therefore it aroused God's anger or His wrath. You see, God cannot withstand sin, and while He might delay justice, we'll see it illustrated in the text this morning, He will not deny His holiness. And when we sin... God in His holiness is upset, there is a consequence for it, there is a result to God's anger that all of us live under, it's death. Think about it, God gave the instruction in the garden to Adam and Eve Eve to, to not eat of the fruit, and what did He say? The day in which you eat of the fruit, that day you shall surely what? It's a testimony to God's wrath. His response and His holiness, His holy justice, His holy wrath against sin. And every every cemetery in this world is a testimony to how dirty is too dirty to God. Every testimony is a testimony to God's, or every cemetery is a testimony to God's wrath because the wage of sin is death. So we come to this section of Scripture and we begin to discover something that God is upset, but how do we respond? How do we respond when we do something that upsets God? And I want you to see three responses to repentance. We all sin, we all fall short of God's glory, we all are here not as holy and perfect, but as ones that do things that upset the Lord. So how do we respond when we upset God? And let me give you three responses. Number one, Confess the wrong committed. Confess the wrong committed. Number two, trust the Lord in the consequences. Trust the Lord in the consequences. And number three, act in obedience. Act in obedience. Now, we've got to understand what is it that upset, upset the Lord, what transpires, and we come to verse 1 and we see, again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and He moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, now go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and count the people that I may know the number of the people. 
And Joab, verse 3, said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, and may the eyes of, the, of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. God is upset. Israel has done something. And we find here that God moves David to, commit, or to count the people or to induct a, a census upon the people. Now, so you can know, if you look there in, in chapter 24 and verse 1, it says that, that the Lord, he moved David. Now, this is not the only place this account is mentioned in Scripture. You would find in 1 Chronicles 21 that there's another account of the, the section. And where 2 Samuel 24 says that he was moved, you find in Chronicles 21 that Satan had a place in this. That Satan stood against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Now, I think it's pretty clear for us. We're like, there's a big difference between God who is holy and Satan who is fallen. So what happens? They're kind of saying two different things, but not necessarily. You see, we believe and know what the Scripture teaches is that God is sovereignly in control of all things, and God works and accomplishes His sovereign will as He sees fit, and that Satan is a pawn in the hands of God. Think about it in Scripture. When you come to the book of Revelation, you see Satan in his work. And what does it say of Satan? That he's given power to do. That God lets Satan or allows Satan to do certain things to accomplish his will. Think about it in Job when Satan went to God to talk about Job. And Satan could do nothing to Job without God's permission. And so here, something has been committed, there's been a violation of God's holiness in His Word, and He is upset, and He is working to bring the people to repentance. And He's working His will, and even Satan, in his tempting of David here, is a part of God bringing about His purpose. And we see what takes place is that David wants to, to conduct a census. And if you look closely, it appears that Joab and the commanders aren't totally for this because it's very risky to, to take a census of the people. Joab is kind of wanting the king's army to be huge and wanting the land to be, or the people to be prosperous, but he says, why, why do you want to do this? And the king's word prevails. Chronicles puts it, that Joab said to David, why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? This is dangerous. Why is a census such a dangerous thing? Why could it invoke a, a wrong response? Well, if you look throughout Scripture, you see that a census is only really taken for two purposes. For war and for taxes. Matter of fact, the committee, taking a census is not necessarily a bad thing. Exodus chapter 30 gives some really um, specific instructions. If you're going to count the people, when you count them, uh, that they should give a ransom. That is, pay a tax, a half shekel, and that if that doesn't happen, in Exodus chapter 30, you see that they are going to be exposed to plagues. The whole idea behind a census is that when there is a count, we are to be reminded that all those counted belong to the Lord. All those have been saved by the Lord. It's not their life, but there appears to be something different here in David's count. 
David's counting for his own pride. David, we're not told, but maybe he didn't collect the ransom. David wanted to know how big his army was. This was his count. For when you find in Scripture, it is the Lord that numbers His people, and when He numbers them, it's because they belong to Him. David wants to see how many people belong to Him and not the Lord. And from this, it stirs up consequences that face the people. If you look at verse 5 through 8, or 5 through 9, you see that they go throughout the land, and for the sake of my own embarrassment, I'm not going to try to pronounce some of those places. You have fun. Listen to the Bible app afterwards. But you see that they travel from the northern part to the southern part. You find that they go throughout the whole land, and they come up with a number after nearly 10 months. 10 months of counting because God is working they come up with a number, and for full disclosure, you'll see the number in verse 9, but it doesn't match the number that's given in 1 Chronicles 21. In 2 Samuel 24, we see the number is 800,000 Israelites and 500,000 from Judah. In 1 Chronicles, we find that they come up with the number of 1.1 million for Israel and 470,000 for Judah. Now, you look at that and go, somebody really kind of stinks at counting. What's the deal here? There's no need to panic because there's many different takes and, and explanations of the differences. Differences between counting the people and counting just the fighting men. You even find throughout Scripture something unique as they counting the, the fighting men. One says 800,000, one says 1.1 million, so that's a little discrepancy. But if you were to thumb through Scripture, you'd find in 1 Chronicles 27 that there's a standing army of 12 divisions of 24,000 men. It would make up 288,000 men. Then in 2 Chronicles Chapter 1, you find that specifically in Jerusalem was another group, another standing army of 12,000 men. It helps take that 800,000 to that 1.1 million. Is it possible they didn't count those men? The discrepancy of 30,000 between uh, Judah in 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21, you find in 2 Samuel chapter 1 that Judah had a standing army of 30,000 that would make up that missing amount. However, we don't know exactly what it is, but it's that importance to understand that we can still trust God's Word, that there's explanations within it that we may not fully get. But now we need to see, what do I do when I upset God? And we come now to verse 10. We come to the first response, confess the wrong committed. Look at what happens in David. Ten months of counting, Ten months of God working His judgment upon His people because of their rebellion, because of sin, because He's holy. And it says, and David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. I want you to see the first response. As people who are fallen, as people who do things that upset God, and think about it, we do things to upset each other. Your kids did things to upset you on the way to church this morning. 
It's a reality. How do we respond to that? David shows us the first response. Confess the wrong committed. Notice how it sets up. You see first the importance of the heart or the conscience. Do you see in verse 10 it says David's heart condemned him. Put your finger by that word condemned and look at what the picture is. David's heart, his conscience, it condemned, it struck him, it beat him, it smite him. It's kind of, it got the idea that David, after these 10 months, realizes that, man, he went about this counting incorrectly, and it was sinful, and it was this, the Spirit of God was just punching him, going, hey, you've got to deal with this. You can't shake it. You, you know that moment where you wake up, and you know that something is wrong in your life, and you, you try, to, try to shake it off, but it's like a constant beating upon your mind. You're not right. You're not right. You wake up, and it's just... The, the heartache over something that's wrong in your life, and you're thinking, you know what? Oh, man, I'm just a little off. I think I need a bowl of Honey Nut Cheerios. It lowers your cholesterol, right? So you eat your Honey Nut Cheerios, but for some reason, when your conscience is struck, struck you, you can't taste the honey. Something's not right. David, in confessing his wrong committed, notice what happens. His conscience strikes him. There's a big warning for us because there's many that try to drown out their conscience or to numb it. The Bible even warns in the last days in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that, that men will sear their conscience. Their conscience will be dead. But God has graciously and lovingly given us that sense of guilt, that conscience to strike us when there's a need for forgiveness. I think of the famous Russian writer Theodore Dostoevsky, who wrote the classic and well-known novel Crime and Punishment. It's an incredible story, and he masterfully reveals the importance of the conscience in the novel. You have a man by the name of Raskolnikov that has this idea or this thought that that he can be a, a superman and that he is able to commit crimes or to do things and be kind of free from the consequences. And so he concocts this idea to murder a pawnbroker because the pawnbroker is a greedy, evil old woman. And his act of violence would actually be a positive thing because he'd be able to help a lot of people out with her money and his situation would be better. And he thinks that he can commit the crime with no effect on his conscience and as he commits it, chapter after chapter, Dostoevsky reveals the reality of the conscience, and Raskolnikov is haunted. He hears the mention of murderer, and it stirs him. He can't sleep on his bed. His actions haunt him, and everything he thought he could get away with and would not bother him, he lives it in the tragedy until he confesses. Do you see what it shows here with David? His conscience struck him. Don't numb it, don't drown it out, but understand it as a gracious act of God to break through the blindness of your life. Do you see what the text says? It's been 10 months, but finally there's a breakthrough. And look at what David does. If you look at verse 10, he acknowledges his sin. He confesses it. He says he greatly sinned or he sinned greatly. He's not sidestepping. He's going, I made a major mistake before the Lord. Look at verse 10. He says he committed iniquity. That is, he understands that he did something that, was, that he's guilty of, that he did a wrongdoing, that he's liable for punishment. He owns it. There's no excuses here. 
I like what he comes to and he finally says, I've done a very foolish thing. Do you see that in verse 10? Notice what happens in his confession. He totally and completely owns it. He completely accepts it. And this opens up this wonderful opportunity for David. And it opens up a wonderful opportunity for you. Do you know what the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9? That if we confess our what? Sins. What is God faithful and just to do? To forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All unrighteousness. While God is upset with the sin... He works in David's life to come to God and to confess it. There's this wonderful truth that if your conscience is stricken you, it's the Lord calling you to confess that He might wash you and cleanse you. Think about what the Proverbs says in Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. I do things that upset God, so what do I do? I should confess those things before the Lord that I might find his mercy. Look at the second response. Trust the Lord in the consequences. Do you see in verse 11, God sends his prophet, the prophet Gad, to David. And he gives David in verse 12, three options, consequences for his sin. Consequences are seen in verse 13, shall seven years of famine, your Bible may say three years, we'll look at that briefly in a minute, may the famine come to you in your land, or shall you flee months before your enemy while they pursue you, or the third one, shall there be three days plague in your land, now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. David's confronted with the consequences of his sin. You find later on that David writes that he's distressed. This is tearing him up. David's in this, really, this real reality that many of us are. You come to that moment where you're broken over your sin, your conscience has struck you, you're going, I can't shake this anymore, and you confess it to the Lord, and you're broken, you're even weeping, and you're just so torn over what you have done, and Christ forgives you, but there's, there's this reality that while you go through all that, and you're so distressed, and you find forgiveness, that you stand at the base of the mountain of consequence. Like, that's the reality. Think about it. There are cemeteries that are filled with believers in Christ, with Christians that are forgiven of their sins. They're washed and they're cleansed. But there's still that consequence of sin, that death still comes. But we stand as Christians in those cemeteries and we look at those graves and what do we say? But the dead in Christ shall rise. There's this, this reality here that though we can be forgiven and washed, we still face consequences, but will you trust the Lord in the consequences? Like, look through this. Think about it. You stand at that mountain like, okay, I've, I've accepted my wrong. I've asked for forgiveness, but then the consequences come through. Think about how distressing it can be, a torn family, a loss of friendship, the financial responsibility from the, the sin that was committed, incarceration, termination. You can continue the list on, but will you trust the Lord that He is holy in His justice, holy in His wrath, but He's also holy in His mercy. He's holy in His love. David stands at the base of that mountain, and God gives him three options. It reminded me of something. I remember being a young kid and my Aunt Sabina sitting me down and talking about moments growing up for her when she would be disciplined. And she goes, my dad, 
I remember telling him, my dad would tell me when we were to be disciplined that we were to go into his bedroom and go into his closet and we were to pick through his belts and pick the belt we wanted to be disciplined with. So she goes, I remember walking down the hall and I went into my dad's bedroom and I, I opened up the closet and there are all his belts and she goes, I'm picking through them and she goes, and then I found the one. She goes, he had this belt that was made out of the flimby, flimsiest cotton material on the planet. She's like, I remember picking that one. It weighed like four ounces. Took it out there to him. It couldn't even stand up, just like dangling. And I get like, here, I am ready for my discipline. So my dad just grabbed it and he just laughed. What am I going to do with this? God kind of comes in and says, okay, you get to pick. Think about it. If you get to pick your consequences, imagine you're David right now. You've come to confess, okay, I've I do things that upset God. I confess them. And I also want to trust him as I face the consequences. Which one do you pick? We know famine is a real consequence. Do you remember chapter 21? Saul's sin brought famine. You see, throughout the Old Testament, God raises up nations to bring judgment upon nations. Pestilence or a plague is a, is a consequence. Matter of fact, it's a consequence in Exodus 30 verse 12 of, a, of an incorrect census. So these are real things. What do you pick? You see, first, the famine, your text in 2 Samuel 24 may say seven years. 1 Chronicles 21 says three. So which one is it? Like, that's a difference. Well, one of the approaches is that the writer in writing seven for the famine was not a literal year, but it speaks of the severity of it, like the severity of the, uh, the famine that hit Egypt in the time of Joseph. Another way of simply doing it is like it's just a basic copyist error. Think about the last time you wrote down a phone number and you got it wrong, and you for like three weeks were texting an entire stranger about meeting at McDonald's with the kids. That happens. Come here and you see your options. Years of famine, three months of fleeing from the enemy, or three days of plague. If you're David, which one do you pick? Some of you are thinking like, oh, I like to just rip the band-aid off quick. Let's do the three days, right? That's the quickest one. Kind of an off thing to tear a band-aid off slowly. You're not right if you do that. Sit there and let it pull each individual hair out, 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 out. It's more the one, done. So part of you go to the three-day. Which one would be the easiest for David? I want you to think, that, think about it, the famine. Well, if the famine hit, there's one problem. The children of Israel, God's people, would have to rely on a foreign nation for food. That's kind of weird. Your God can't provide food for you. But it'd be the easiest for David. David's the king of, of Israel. Do you think he's going to go without food? I'll prove it to you. One of the most impoverished nations in the world is North Korea. Think about how much famine and food deficiency there is in North Korea that you see little children that are so malnourished that they have cataracts at a young age. You see their struggle for food, but have you seen the leader of North Korea? I don't think that dude has ever missed a meal because he's the supreme leader. David could have said, we'll do famine, I'll be okay, my family will be fine, we'll still eat and have a full king's table. 
Look at the other one. What about running for three months from the enemy? A little bit of fleeing, a little bit of war. I mean, David, is he not a man of war? Is he not a warrior, a commander? Does he not have many victories? I can run and flee. I have some strategies. There's something about war for David that might say, well, at least I can kind of be in control a little bit. I can take matters into my own hands. We, we like that. But if you remember David as the young boy coming from the sheepfold or his father's house bringing some snacks for his brothers when the giant Goliath stood there, what did David say to Goliath? I'm coming against you in the name of the Lord in whom you have defied. Does he want to fall into the hands of men that are going to defy God's name, that are not merciful? Which one would you pick? Notice verse 14, David's faith. He trusts the Lord with the consequences. I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for His mercies are what? Great. Do you see what he's trusting? I know that I deserve the consequence. I know that this is fair. Even we know something that David doesn't, that Israel has done something. But what is David's faith? He goes, I trust, Lord, whatever consequence you bring, I know in it you will be merciful. I know that you shall judge all the earth right, as it says in Genesis. He comes in and he says he's distressed. Let that distress settle in. And that distressing is to be bound. He's chained down by anxiety. He's chained down by, dis- by stress. Think about it. All night he's looked at, man, I've sinned. I'm such a fool. I did it again. Another mess up. And he got over and over. And God says, which one? And he goes, I just want you to do what you see fit. I trust you because you're merciful. It's that moment in your life where, yes, we all do things that upset the Lord, but look at what you find in this. As I confess, there's forgiveness. As I trust Him in the consequences I face, I can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the consequences He brings are filled with His holy mercy. Something to work through. How can there be this holy wrath and holy justice and holy mercy? We'll we'll get to that, but there's something building here. David's entire life is marked by his trust in the Lord's mercies. I went through the Psalms, and you see in his Psalms how often he talks about the mercy of God. Matter of fact, when he messed up major with Bathsheba and Uriah, and his sin was so great, it deserved death. But God was merciful. Even in all the consequences that came to him, David's heart still beat. And he writes in Psalm 51, Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. You see the trust that I know that I am, I, I, I'm getting what I deserve, but even in reality, it's not fully what I deserve because he's merciful. Psalm 86, verse 15, listen to what David wrote. But you, O Lord, God, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in mercy and truth. In Psalm 119, verse 156, great are your tender mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your justice, do, judgments. Do you see what David understands? That he can trust the Lord even though he sins, even though he falls short, that God will be merciful to him in the consequence he faces. Oh, it brings such strength to you that stand at the foot of a huge mountain of consequences as you've confessed. You go, I'm tired. I can't do this. Why is this happening? Just know you can trust the Lord to be merciful to you. You find that he trusts in the mercy of God, that loving kindness that he has experienced, and you see things hit in verse 15 and 16. 
the plague comes upon them and let it settle in, 70,000 men, 70,000 men of the people die. You may say, uh, where's, where's the mercy? The wages of sin is death. But look at verse 16. When the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction. And he said to the angel who was destroying the people, it is enough. Now restrain your hand. And right at the threshing floor of the Jebusite Arona, the angel sheathed the sword. Do you see the mercy? The wages of his death, it could wipe all of it out, all of them out, and God still, it would be holy in his justice. But notice what he does. He has a moment as he comes to the city of David, the city of God, and he says, stop. It's incredible. And, and, and think about what is expressed here. I don't know if you've ever been to the ocean, and it's so amazing to stand at the ocean and look at the vastness of the waters, right? The millions of gallons and how they crash in on the, on the shore. And the ocean has so much power in it, right? If you're ever out there and you're caught turning your back on the ocean, it jumps you hard. But there's something about the ocean that it crashes and it has a spot on the shore where it goes no further. And you can like go out there and go, and the ocean is not going to get you. It'll come right up there. And it's, it's frigid 60 degree water will tickle your toes and then go back out. Because God says to the ocean, there you stop. And look at what God did here on the threshing floor. He said to it, that justice, that anger, there you stop. It's his mercy. Which leads into the, the third response, and watch how this kind of crescendos up, because we've put on the table that he's holy, and in his holiness, sin angers him. In his holiness, he's just to punish and to discipline sin, but in his holiness, he has this mercy in which he will hold back or find satisfaction for his wrath somewhere else. And so we come here to verse 17 through 25, and we see with David, and he acts in obedience. It's really kind of a sign of repentance. Remember, for 10 months, he's counting the people, and he has wrong motives, and it's it, it's it's wrong before God, and he confesses it. And notice this time, he redoes things. You see in verse 17, in this act in obedience, look at his honest heart. In verse 17, then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. Do you see this act? What is David saying? Let the punishment fall upon me. Here's what's great. We're in the last chapter of, of Samuel, right? We're closing these two books out. And in this last chapter, in one of the last verses, verse 17, you get a little glimpse of the first time we saw David. Do you see in that, but these sheep? Do you remember we saw the young little teenage boy with his peach fuzz and, and the little dirt from the field made it look like he actually might have had somewhat of a mustache? It was like a little mascara on it. And where was he brought from? 
the sheep. And he was anointed as the shepherd over God's people. And here you see in this last chapter a little glimpse of that shepherd boy's heart. No, I want to I suffer on behalf of the sheep. This shouldn't come through and get them. I know I wronged. May it fall upon me. This wonderful, honest heart of a, of a shepherd to willingly endure the punishment that the sheep might be spared. And look at what you see in these acts of obedience. You see him follow God's command in verse 19. You see that he's given the command to go to Arona and go to his threshing floor. So David, verse 19, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Chapter 10, or, chapter, or verse 10, his heart was struck and he was, he was convicted and his conscience stricken because he, he didn't follow the Lord's command. His census was wrong. But look at here. He quickly stops what he's doing to do exactly what God calls him to do. He's, he's this acts of repentance. He's turning around and he comes to Arona and he comes in verse 22 through 24 in desire to go to this threshing floor and to offer sacrifice. As God has held back in his mercy, the plague is it's not going any further. He's waiting for David to offer sacrifice to appease the wrong. And you see in verse 20 through 24 that this obedience is costly. Now, Arona said to David, verse 22, let my Lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifices or for sacrifice and threshing implements and the yoke of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Arona has given to the king. And Arona said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Arona, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Now will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. We're coming into a moment of sacrifice, but look at this obedience. Look at this sacrifice. It's costly. We ever consider that you can't really have sacrifice without a cost? It, it cancels itself out. I'll give you an example. There's this moment with Abraham. God blesses Abraham with his son Isaac, right? And, and it's this promised son, and God comes to Abraham. He's like, Abraham, you know your son Isaac? And Abraham's like, yes, God, I love him so much. I know he's the son in whom you love. First time love's mentioned in the Bible. Like, I love him so much. I'm so thankful for him, God. He's such a blessing. He means the world to me. And God says, okay, I'm going to show you a mountain. Go sacrifice him to me. Huh? Do you, do you hear the cost? You have the widow with her two little mites that is all that she had. But what did Jesus look at it as? As a great sacrifice, a great cost. Sacrifice has cost. And look at his act of obedience. He's going to do what the Lord wants. And Aaron says, here, you can have all of it. And he goes, no, I, I, it's not how it works. And you find here that he purchases the threshing floor for 50 shekels. It's a rather small amount, but it really is just the section of land that he's going to use. 1 Chronicles 21 mentions that he, he purchases the entire site for 180 times more than just the threshing floor. Like he, he, he purchases all of it to offer this sacrifice. He gives all. And what's wonderful about this cost is what he does is he secures a site where the, the wrath and the mercy and the love of God, the holiness of God, kind of stops at this moment. And this site 
is where his son Solomon will erect the temple and there will be continual sacrifices to God there. Do you see what's happening? Where is the holy wrath of God, the holy love of God, the holy mercy of God, the holy justice of God, all meted out and all work together? And you see in verse 25, it's in this place where there is sacrifice. And David offers two types of sacrifices, burnt offering and peace offerings. Burnt offering is the most common of all Old Testament sacrifices, and its main purpose is to atone for human sin, to satisfy the wrath of God because He is holy and He does not tolerate sin. And a peace offering follows because it's a great celebration that flows from that blessing of the burnt offering that I can have peace with God. Now watch, we started strong with God's angry. Because look at what comes down. It's at this place the temple is erected. It's at this place that David goes after he cries out to the Lord, but the sheep, the sheep. And I want to tell you of somebody else that made his way to this, this threshing floor. His name is Jesus. It says of Jesus in Mark chapter 10 that when he was on his way, on the road going up to Jerusalem, he paused with his disciples, and for the last time he said, the Son of Man is going up to Jerusalem. And there he will be handed over, and he's going to be scourged, he's going to be beaten, he's going to be spit upon, and he's going to be crucified. But on the third day, he's going to rise from the dead. Mark continues with that, with that journey up into Jerusalem. You can, you can see the shadow of David running at the word of the prophet Gad to this threshing floor, and there you see David walking up to it. And in Mark, after the triumphal entry, as he comes into that city, like David ran, it says that Jesus went into the temple. And there he looked around in that place. And here's where we see this great aspect that the holy wrath of God, the holy justice of God, the holy mercy of God, and the holy love of God all meet together and consistently make sense. Because do you remember verse 17? What did David say in the shepherd? Oh, the sheep, the sheep. Can I tell you that that greater David who walked that road, who went to that temple, who stood amongst those people, he said what David could not say. He said this, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He said, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by my own as the father knows me, even so I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Do you see that the holy wrath, the holy love, the holy mercy, the holy justice is all meted out and makes sense in the fact that God sent the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, as the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. As you look at this and you see David stack that wood, will you look at Christ who bears that wooden cross? 
As you see David's hands become bloody from the oxen that are offered, will you gaze at Christ's hands and will you behold the free-flowing, perfect blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Will you look at it that there, the wrath of God was satisfied and you did nothing to deserve it, and you did nothing to participate in it, but that it was, as as John would write in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, that Jesus was the propitiation for our sins, that Jesus was that satisfying sacrifice to fulfill and satisfy the wrath of God against sin. And that if that is not enough, John writes in John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, that it was the love of God for you that he sent, had sent Jesus to be that satisfying, appeasing sacrifice on your behalf. So that you could stand in the presence of God knowing that his mercy and his grace abounds towards you. That he has, through his son, treated you justly. That his wrath has been satisfied. And that he receives you as he receives his son. To put it more plainly, it was divine love that triumphed over the divine wrath by the divine sacrifice of Jesus. What do I do when I upset God? I confess and I run to the shadow and the foot of the cross, and there I find his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. And I find that in Christ, he bears my punishment that I might stand in his presence, forgiven and accepted. Father, I thank you That we can have a real talk and discussion about the biblical reality of who you are, and that is you are holy. And Father, there is no possible way for any of us to approach you as a holy God, but you, Father, have made it possible and accomplished it and paved the way through your Son, Jesus. And so, Lord, because Christ died for us, because you gave your only begotten Son, because Christ willingly laid down his life for us, Father, we can be accepted in your kingdom. We can have a confidence that we can run boldly into your throne room of grace to find help in our time of need. We can know, Lord, that as we face the consequences of our sin, and we know the very real reality that, Lord, death is real in our world. It's a consequence of sin. But God, there is that great holy mercy and love that we all live in as believers, that the dead in Christ shall rise. So, Lord, may we take sin how you take it. May we turn from it. And Lord, may we be washed and cleansed of it through the blood of Jesus Christ who died in our place. Lord, if there's any lost, I pray, Father, that they would come to the cross and be forgiven, that they'd be found in Christ, made new. And I ask while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if there was an uncomfortable work of God's Spirit in your life and there was 
really the striking of your conscience. And you realize I've done things that have upset God. But you see that it's not God to be blamed. But it's our actions and our deeds. But you've seen what God has done to make you right with Him. To forgive you. To have His mercy and His love abound towards you. That in His love He sent His Son. And you want to be forgiven of your sin. You want to know that you're not what the scripture talks about as a child of wrath, but you are a son or a daughter of the king who is forgiven and accepted. Would you raise your hand? Does anybody? God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? God bless you. It's incredible to see that a message that maybe at the start you thought, is he just trying to put fear in us? No, I'm trying you to see how wonderful Jesus is. Anybody else? Just raise your hand. For those of you that raised your hand, I want you to take a minute and go before the Lord who gave his son to die on your behalf and ask him to forgive you. For those of you that raised your hand, cry out to the Lord and in faith, confessing what you've come to believe and know is true and say, Lord, I know today that I've done things that upset you. But I thank you that you've been merciful to me. Thank you that you've held back your justice and that your son, Jesus, died on the cross for my sin. That Christ paid the price for my wrong that your mercy might abound in my life. I ask that you would forgive me of my sin. I know Christ died for it. And I know that Christ rose from the dead on the third day. I now turn to walk in obedience to you or with you, seeking to please you by the life I live. Give me the strength to honor you. In Jesus' name. Amen.